0: There is no higher plane a Christian stands on above another. You don't have, as we saw last week, more Holy Spirit than the Christian sitting next to you. Now, you might be operating in a power that is greater because you are more yielded to the Holy Spirit, you are obeying the law of God, you are in prayer, you are in the Word of God, you are more in tune and more sensitive to the sin in your life, but you don't have any more of the Holy Spirit than someone else has. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I want you to take your Bibles this morning and be turning with me to Romans chapter 5 again. Romans chapter 5, we find ourselves in verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. These are verses that are just jam-packed with so much rich theological truth and So we've taken our time walking through them. I've entitled this section of Scripture, We the People. And uh, we've looked at uh, the first eight verses so far of chapter 5. And this morning we want to look at verses 9, 10, and 11. But of course, as always, I will review the first eight verses. Let me read our passage uh, before we look at it. And I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 5, picking up in verse 1. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You may be seated. May God add His blessing to His word, and let's go to Him briefly in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this passage of Scripture. We are grateful for the Gospel. We are grateful for this doctrine of justification. You know the needs of those who are here today. But the great need of everyone is to have a greater understanding of Christ, a greater understanding of the Gospel to enrich our worship, to enrich our gratitude, to encourage our hearts. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would take your Holy Word and do its work in your people this morning. We pray this with confidence and assurance, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you, of course, have heard the famous sports expression, there is no I in team. There is no I in team. Well, incidentally, there is no I in church either. And what Paul expresses here in Romans chapter 5 is something that is true of all believers. It's something true of all those justified by God. Paul states here in verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he is telling us in that single statement what is true of all of those who have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith. If you like, you could literally say we have been declared righteous. Which means by implication, we were unrighteous. We were not saved. We were sinners. We were separated from God. But we have been justified or declared righteous by faith. That is really an understatement. And Paul acknowledges that because in the rest of verse 1 all the way through verse 11... The great apostle Paul launches into a series of blessings that flow to us because of this reality of justification. Now, if you note there in the passage, that first person plural pronoun, we, absolutely dominates the passage. That's why I've entitled it, we the people. These are things or blessings that we, the people of God, have received because of our justification. Paul says, for example, in verse 1, We have been justified by faith. Verse 1, we have peace with God. Uh, Verse 2, we have obtained access by faith. Verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 9, we have now been justified. Verse 9, we shall be saved. Verse 10, we are reconciled. Verse 11, we rejoice and God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The preamble of the U.S. Constitution begins with, we the people, before it enumerates a desire to form a more perfect union, resulting in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the difference here is that what we are now is not the result of something the people have declared, it's the result of something God has declared. God has declared all of those who have come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his finished work on the cross of Calvary, God the Father has declared us, we the people, righteous. It is a declarative act of God. God did not so much make you righteous, Although he is conforming you to the image of his son since your conversion and since your justification, awaiting that day in which you will be glorified. This is more of a legal term. It has to do with courtroom language. It's a legal declaration that we are justified. And I should hasten to say that what we are cannot be divorced from what we were. What were we? Well, verse 6, we were still weak. We were ungodly. Verse 10, we were enemies of God. And yet, verse 10 says, we are reconciled to God. These blessings of justification, as we've called them, we've called them blessings, is a result of one, namely God. It is not the result of many, that is us. And further, they are meant to form a more perfect union, we could say, with Christ and with one another. That is a very practical point to draw from this passage. I want you to understand this morning, as we finish out these verses, very practically, the ground is not only level at the foot of the cross, because we are all equally sinners and equally condemned and equally unsaved, apart from the salvific work of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, but this morning... The church floor is level before God's altar. There is no higher plane a Christian stands on above another. You don't have, as we saw last week, more Holy Spirit than the Christian sitting next to you. Now, you might be operating in a power that is greater because you are more yielded to the Holy Spirit, you are obeying the law of God, you are in prayer, you are in the Word of God, you are more in tune and more sensitive to the sin in your life, but you don't have any more of the Holy Spirit than someone else has. You are not a better Christian than the person sitting next to you. This is the whole point of the doctrine of justification. It makes everyone equal before God in their standing, in their acceptance, in their status. And the more you see that, the more you will have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The more perfect your union will be with others in the body of Christ, and you will, as verse 11 says, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is praising God in verse 11 not praising self. This is taking I out of the church. So these blessings are something we are to rejoice in together. These blessings are blessings that we share together because of our union with Jesus Christ. Now there are six of them and I just want to review the first four quickly. Number one, the first blessing that flows from justification is that we have peace with God. We, the people, have peace with God. The end of verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He said at the beginning of verse 1, we're justified by faith. He says at the end of verse 1 that this comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith in Christ that establishes peace with God. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is the one that went to war for us. Jesus is the one that went to battle with sin and Satan and death to establish peace that we have now with God, which implies, as verse 10 directly says, you were an enemy of God. It implies that you are hostile to God. It implies that you were not in God's army. You were not on God's team. As Jesus says to the religious leaders, we were all essentially children of the devil, We were working and operating in the power of Satan. We were his enemies. We were against him. We were not for him. All of us, like sheep, Isaiah says, have gone astray. All of us. But Paul says, all of us, we the people who have come to faith in Christ, now have peace with God. And as I said last week, it is such an understatement. It is so difficult for me this morning to explain to you how significant That is, you now are at peace with God, no longer at odds with the only true, powerful, all-knowing God who sees your heart, knows your heart, knows your sins, knows your past. Your sins have been covered because of Christ. God no longer holds anything against you, nothing. You are at peace with him. And if God be for us, then who can stand against us? The second blessing that flows from justification, not only peace with God, but number two, access before God. He says in verse 2, through him, that is Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we are standing in the status of being declared righteous, and therefore we've obtained access. Because we've been declared righteous, we are now able to come into the Father's inner chambers, Christ is leading the way. He is our mediator. He is our great intercessor, and we have obtained through him, verse 2 is saying, access before the Father, not just for a conference, not just for a quick meeting, but for face-to-face access and fellowship, bold access we have, bold confidence we have to come before the Father. Before this, our sin would not allow us to come before God. Our sin would not allow us to pray to God and expect our prayers to be answered. Before this, our sin completely and totally alienated us from any access to God. But through Jesus Christ, we have access. And as I read in Leviticus chapter 1 with the burnt offerings and the food offerings, all of those offerings symbolized, particularly the animal offerings, symbolized The shed blood, the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement by the High Priest. Now, when the veil in the temple was torn in two at the cross of Calvary, all of that temple and tabernacle stuff has been done away. And all of God's people have entered behind the veil, as it were, with 100% access before God. I may be a pastor, but I can't tap into God any more than you can tap into God. The Bible says that every true believer has access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Every problem, every anxiety, every vexation, every worry, every concern, every little thing that goes on in your life is not too small to bring before your heavenly father. Listen, if he took care of the biggest deal, which was your sin and your rebellion and your unwillingness to be on God's side and you fighting with God, how much more is he going to hear the prayers of even something that may appear meaningless and answer them according to his will and for your good? You have the blessing of praying to God and having that fellowship. The third blessing that flows from justification, not only peace with God and access before God, but number three, hope of the glory of God. The end of verse two, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can rejoice this morning because we have peace with God. We can rejoice this morning because we have access into an intimate fellowship with our triune God, behind the veil, as it were. But we can also rejoice because we have the hope of the glory of God. We have the hope of being changed into his likeness when he returns. We therefore have the hope that he is returning someday. We have the hope that there is an eternity that is awaiting us, that is being prepared for us, that this life is just a flash in the pan. This life is but a vapor. It's a mist that's here for a while and it's gone. We have the hope of the glory of God and the glory of God resides in us through the Holy Spirit. The glory of God resides in Christ in whose image we will be changed in. The glory of God is held out into all of eternity for us to enter into and even the glory of God today in this world is seen when the gospel is preached and when Christians are faithful to obey the Lord, their master. We have the hope of the glory of God Regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of what's going on in the news, regardless of how difficult your job may be, regardless how difficult your marriage may be, regardless how rebellious your children may seem to be right now, we have the hope of the glory of God only because of the gospel. So if you have Christ, you have hope. If you don't have Christ, you have no hope. And therefore, you have no glory, but only misery. And not just for this life, but for the next life. So Paul is emphasizing the blessings that flow from justification. Now last week we saw the fourth one. Not only peace with God, access before God, hope of the glory of God. But number four, rejoicing and suffering for God. We saw this. In verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Notice the sequence, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. There's that word again. And now Paul gives us the assurance, verse 5, this hope I'm talking about does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us? There is a sense in which everything that I'm telling you this morning that is a blessing that you have received because of justification, you can sit there and say, Yeah, Pastor, I already know that. I know that because I experience the love of God in my heart, subjectively. I feel close to God. I know that God knows me. I know that I know him. I know that he is protecting me. I know nothing in this world can harm me. I know that even my trials, which he has ordained, will produce endurance and character. And therefore, my hope will not be disappointed. Why? Not because I have warm fuzzies not because I'm just seeking some sort of experience that I can't wrap my fingers or my mind around. No, it's very simple because of the objective truth of the gospel. Paul was a very simple preacher. Verse six, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, what other argument do you need if you're a true Christian to be convinced of the love of God being poured out in your heart? He died at the right time, for you and I, we were ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That means that most people wouldn't sacrifice their life even for a good person. And yet Jesus died for the ungodly, the rebellious. Verse 8, God shows his love, not just in the fact that he pours it into our hearts experientially, but he demonstrated it historically and theologically and biblically at Calvary, and that while we were still sinners, verse 8, Christ died for us. So Paul says in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings because of the objective truths of the gospel that have been historically verified, that have been theologically explained, that have been made crystal clear in scripture. And the fact that if you're a true child of God, you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And God has poured his love into you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so the peace that you have in your legal standing before God becomes experiential. And it becomes real. And it becomes true to you. So that your assurance is solidified. Now we want to move to the fifth and sixth blessings of justification. And the fifth one is found in verses 9 and 10. Justification is something we can rejoice in because, number five, we have freedom from the wrath of God. We have freedom from the wrath of God. Notice verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now the idea of verses 9 and 10 is that this hope that Paul spoke about, that it's impossible for us to be disappointed in, because of God's love, which is so deep that has been poured into our hearts and verified objectively by Jesus dying on the cross, even though we were still sinners, Christ shed his blood. If God did that for us through Jesus Christ, then how much more will we be saved from the future outpouring of God's wrath? I am asked all the time, especially in the last week or so, what I think about what is going on in the land of Israel. What, What do you think is going on in Palestine? Well, there's a number of things going on. A number of things going on, we don't have time to go into detail this morning, but what I can say is this, if you do not believe that on a grand scale, God is sovereign and God oftentimes inflicts punishment and chastisement on all sorts of peoples in the world, people from every tribe and every tongue then you're simply not a Christian. If you don't believe that there is a powerful God who has a purpose and a reason behind everything, and it well may be the case, and I believe it is so, that God's wrath has been unleashed against our own nation. And there might not be bombs going off, but this God is an active of God. This, this is not a God who sleeps. This is a God who is fully active. He knows every heart. He knows every government. He knows uh, the reality of every church and every professing Christian. And he is a God who is not only a God of mercy and grace, he is a God of justice. And while as a Christian, we may presently be freed from his wrath and the promise of his eternal wrath, Paul nevertheless wants to press home the fact that this God has such a right to fury and wrath and anger being unleashed, that he has to assure his readers, listen, this is not something you have to worry about. You have been justified, and God's wrath is no longer on you, but that status you have is never going to change. His holy, eternal wrath, you are eternally freed from. In fact, verses 9 and 10 run parallel, because they demonstrate that the believer is freed from God's wrath, number one, because of his or her legal relationship with God, and number two, because of his or her personal relationship with God. So Paul's now coming back to the doctrine of justification specifically. He's repeating it, and he's going to talk about this legal relationship in verse 9. As Christians, our legal relationship frees us from the wrath of God. Notice verse 9 again. Since, therefore, building on everything that he said... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. That is very interesting because notice in verse 1, Paul says, We have been justified by what? Faith. And now he's saying in verse 9, we've been justified by His blood. Well, which is it, Paul? Are we justified by faith? Or are we justified by blood? Well, the answer is easy. We are saved through the instrumentation of our faith. But it is Jesus' blood that ultimately saves us. In other words, our justification, our legal standing before God is not earned by your demonstration of faith. And if that is what you believe, then you hold to Phineism, but you don't hold to Calvinism. And more importantly, you don't hold to what the Bible teaches. Our justification is not based on the fact that through our demonstration of faith, we earned salvation. No, Christ earned salvation for us by the shedding of his blood, which is another way of saying the giving of his life. So that's why Paul says we have been justified by his blood. We are justified through the instrumentation of faith, Romans 5.1. But ultimately, we are justified by His blood. It's His blood that makes the difference. And if you want clarity on this, just skip back to chapter 3 and verse 24. Paul says we are justified by His grace as a gift. So it can't have anything to do with you, including your demonstration of faith. We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, how does redemption happen? Through a blood payment through atonement. And so that word blood in Romans 5, 9 reminds us of a sacrificial offering. Everything that the Old Testament spoke about, everything that the New Testament book of Hebrews speaks about, which is the New Testament version of the book of Leviticus, all of those sin offerings in the Old Testament, all of those lambs and bulls and birds that were slaughtered daily and weekly and yearly at the tabernacle and the temple, reminds us of the blood of Christ, which ultimately results in our justification. Your faith that you demonstrated was a gift to you from God, Ephesians 2.8. And yes, you demonstrated it, but that was a sovereign work of God. We are justified by his blood. So Paul says here, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, he wants to focus in on what Theologians refer to as substitutionary atonement. The reality that God is so holy, God is so pure, God is so far removed from sin that the only thing that will appease or satisfy or propitiate his wrath is a sacrifice of blood. And I want to tell you three things about the shedding of Jesus' blood. Number one, it was violent, and that is why Paul uses the word blood. He could have just said Jesus died. He says, "No, we are justified by His blood," because in the Bible that is a term of violence. In fact, it is used to describe the violent shedding of the blood of the prophets. It is used to describe the righteous blood of Abel, whose brother murdered him. It is used to describe the blood of Zachariah, who was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. The Bible speaks about um, Judas. After he betrayed our Lord, he confessed to the chief priests and the elders, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That was a recognition that he was involved in the violent, murderous death of Jesus. Or even Pilate, when he agreed to hand Jesus over to be crucified, he told the crowd in Matthew 27, I am innocent of what? I am innocent of this man's blood. That was an admittance that it wasn't a just death. Now, he was going to let the people do it, but it wasn't just. So when the Bible uses the word blood, specifically in reference to Christ, it wants you to understand it was a violent death. It was a murderous death. Was it necessary for your salvation? Yes and amen. But that doesn't take away from the fact it was violent. And it wasn't just violent. I mean, Jesus' blood is only unique in the sense that he's the Holy Son of God, and in the fact that the shedding of this blood was vicarious. Now, the word vicarious just means substitutionarily. And I just made that word up. That's not even a real word. But vicarious means substitution. Substitutionarily, Jesus' blood satisfied God's wrath. What did we just read? Romans 3:24 we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus verse 25 whom God put forward as a what propitiation by his blood to be received by faith so the wrath of God has been revealed right Romans 1:18 but Jesus' shedding blood was vicarious it satisfied God's wrath Jesus' blood not only satisfied God's wrath, number two, it redeemed us from sin. Let me give you a verse. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And you can cross-reference Colossians 1.14 as well. So Jesus' blood is vicarious. He substitutionarily, his blood substitutionarily satisfied God's wrath. It redeemed us from sin. It also bequeathed to us life eternal. In the book of Hebrews, there are a number of verses that we could go to or mention, but we read this in Hebrews chapter 9, that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. To be justified by the blood of Christ means that God's wrath has been satisfied, it means that you have been redeemed from your sins and trespasses, and it means that you have been given life eternal. That's why the substitutionary atonement is critical to believe and to acknowledge, and it's critical that you underline and circle the word blood, because it's pointing to the fact that it was a violent shedding of life, or blood, and it was vicarious. It satisfied God's wrath Jesus' death did, it redeemed us from sin, it bequeathed to us life eternal, it also sanctified us, or purified us, or set us apart. Again, the book of Hebrews, this time chapter 13, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people, here it is again, through his own blood. We are justified by his blood. The shedding of his blood, it was violent. The shedding of His blood, it was vicarious. And number three, the shedding of His blood, it was voluntary. Please understand this morning that Christ was not and is not the victim of divine child abuse. Jesus willingly gave His life. He speaks about this Himself, but the prophet Isaiah speaks for Him, speaks for the suffering servant. He tells us that Jesus volunteered, for example, humbly. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He could have, but he was humble. He volunteered humbly. Not only that, he volunteered eagerly. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He willingly allowed himself to be numbered with a host of other common criminals, one on his right side, one on his left side, truly guilty, and a host of hundreds and thousands that had gone before that had died on the same hill, on the same type of cross, He voluntarily numbered himself with criminals and transgressors like us. And not only that, but Isaiah says he poured out his soul to death. This was willing and voluntary. He gave everything that he had. He was at his best moment at the cross. He gave it all. He volunteered humbly. He volunteered eagerly. He also volunteered affectionately. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You can't take my life away from me. I give it up. I lay it down, and I do it for the sheep, Jesus says. So he volunteered humbly. He volunteered eagerly. He volunteered affectionately. He also volunteered perseveringly. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What was his example? Peter says he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 33 years. That's perseverance. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That takes self-control. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He persevered through that. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He never gave up on the promise and the plan of the father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the covenant of redemption. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself therefore bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5 is that we have been justified by the blood of Christ, the substitutionary atonement. It was violent, it was vicarious, it was voluntary. And this violent, voluntary, vicarious work of atonement justifies us now, but it was such a wonderful work that it will justify us on the final judgment day. And that's what Paul's getting to in the rest of verse 9. All of that was just by way of review to point out the word blood. But now he says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, now you understand the atonement. Now you understand how significant that is, Paul says. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's interesting. God is going to save us from Himself because His wrath has been appeased. That day of reckoning will free every true believer from the wrath of God. The only type of true Christians alive today are half-saved Christians now before you throw a stool at me I only mean that in the sense that we await the removal of indwelling sin and we await the redemption of our bodies Romans 8 verse 23 not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We already are adopted sons. But Paul says we await eagerly as these adopted sons for redemption. We've already been saved, but he's talking about redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. So there is an already not yet reality to the Christian life. Someone asks you, have you been saved? Yes and no. Yes, I've been saved from my sins. Yes, I've been forgiven. Yes, I've been promised eternal life. Yes, I have a relationship with God. I have bold access. I have peace with God. But if you're asking, has sin been removed fully from me? If you're asking, has my body been redeemed? If you're asking me, have I been glorified yet? The answer is no. I'm only a half Christian. But someday I will be a full Christian in the same body that will look a lot better and feel a lot better with all the other saints who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, you have peace now, but you're going to have peace in the future. For those not justified presently, not only do you have the wrath of God revealed upon you, Romans 1.18, right now, but the wrath of God will come upon you on that future day in a way you can't imagine. In fact, in chapter 2 we are referred to as the children of wrath in chapter 2 verse 8 we are referred or unbelievers are spoken about as those who await wrath and fury tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good you say well that's not the Jesus that i know um Because the Jesus I know has blonde hair and blue eyes and a beard and looks kind of effeminate. He loves everyone just the way they are. He's forgiving. He never loses his temper. He never has anger. Because can't we all just get along? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible said this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is a qualified statement, is it not? Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But just before that, he also says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There will be no honoring. Jesus will, no, will not honor any unbeliever at the judgment. But he will bless. We will be free from judgment for all of those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a precious reality that I hope you reflect upon. Because this has to do with your eternity. This has to do with the reality of the fact that God does not renege on His promises. God is not an Indian giver. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. Paul says, I've heard, the end of verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, notice this language, not who delivered, but who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is a wrath to come. There is a judgment day where you will stand before God. All true believers wait for the Son of God. All true believers are not fearful of that judgment Because we've been justified by His blood, and we know that we have been delivered from the wrath to come. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 9. Here's a promise. For God has not destined us for wrath. Isn't that a blessing? You've not been destined for wrath. In eternity past, God chose who He would save. And if you are saved, if you've been justified... You've not been destined for wrath. Read the Bible. How many of God's promises have come true? I think you can trust this one. You've not been destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So we will obtain salvation, as verse 9 says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're only half Christian. We've not fully been glorified. And we live with that tension, don't we? We live with the tension. Is the gospel enough to get me by in the end? And all Paul's saying is it absolutely is. You can bank on it. Why would you ever deny that? Why would you ever doubt that? Whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're living or dead, whether we're on our deathbed or whether we're healthy. We know that we will live with Him. Perhaps one more passage, Second Thessalonians 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Paul spoke about suffering in Romans 5, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So this is even greater comfort. All of those who afflict you, All of those who persecute you will be afflicted by God. He will take vengeance. He will repay. And by the way, in John 5, all judgment has been handed over to the Son. So this is judgment by Jesus. This isn't some weak coward. This is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Son of God. He will seek vengeance. Verse 7, and he will grant relief to You who are afflicted as well as do us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. That sounds like war. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, no glory for them, no hope for them. of being declared righteous, frees us from the wrath of God. Not only in this life, but the surety that we'll be freed from God's wrath in the next life. But there's a second little element to this legal relationship or this freedom from the wrath of God. Not only do we have a legal relationship with God that we can rejoice in, but back to Romans 5, we have a personal relationship. Notice, if you will with me, verse 10, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Saved by His life. With respect to the law, the believer's relationship to it, we no longer stand as sinners, we stand as righteous. God loves us. So this is not some cold legal contract. That's not the doctrine of justification. It's not just that we've been saved from the wrath of God. We've been declared righteous, set apart, saved from the wrath of God. That's courtroom language. We've been justified by His blood. But this is not merely a cold legal contract because God has made His enemies His friends. Notice verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. This doctrine of reconciliation is the same as justification in the sense that both are a divine act. God doesn't just make us right with Him so we can stand before Him, just so that we're tolerable in His presence. No, Paul's saying, this gracious Father has drawn us close to Him. He has made His enemies His friends. And by the way, I should hasten to say, verses 9 and 10 both have an all fortiori argument. That is to say, it's arguing from the greater to the lesser. So here's the first part of it in verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, or by the shedding of his blood, to bar the language of verse 9. If we were enemies when we were reconciled to God through the death of Christ. If you were reconciled when you were an enemy. If you were reconciled when you were running from God, if you were reconciled when you were rebellious, shaking your fist at heaven, Paul says, here's the argument. The second part, notice verse 10. Much more. How much more we could say? Now that we are reconciled, it's finished. We've been brought near to him. Shall we be saved by his life? Here's a simple argument. If a dead Savior, now resurrected, reconciled us to God while we were enemies, then obviously a living Savior, ascended and exalted, can keep us reconciled to God because He ever lives. We're saved not only by His death, but also by His life. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He's our mediator. If a dead, despised, rejected Savior could reconcile us to God, then certainly the living Savior can. It's the same Savior. What's Paul's point? You can rejoice. If God forgives the sins of his enemies and turns those enemies into friends, he doesn't just declare them righteous so they're tolerable in his presence, but he declares them righteous and then draws them in. How will he not also forgive the sins of his friends? Let me ask you a question. You can think this morning about the worst sin on your record that you have committed that no one else knows about. If God forgave that, the sins that you committed when you were an enemy of God, how much more is he going to forgive the sins of his friends that he's brought into his presence, that he's promised to conform to the image of his son? There is no unforgivable sin except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the rejection of the gospel. And that's exactly what Second Thessalonians says. God's destruction comes on those who don't obey the gospel. So these are pressing matters because Paul is now not just dealing about the fact that you can be free from the wrath of God presently, but you can be free from the wrath of God eternally. This is the greatest work ever executed. So Paul says we can rejoice. We can rejoice because all the blessings that flow to us from the doctrine of justification. We have peace with God. We have access before God. We have hope of the glory of God. We have joy in suffering for God. We have joy in freedom from the wrath of God. And finally, number six, we have joy to praise God. We have the joy to praise God. Notice verse 11. More than that. So this is listing now another blessing. Paul likes that expression. More than that. Let me give you even more here. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than that. In other words, there's there's another blessing. What is it? We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Some translations say exalt or glory. You could say More than that, we also revel in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is ironic is that Paul condemned this sort of thing earlier. The word for rejoice there is kakamai, and it literally means boast. Paul says, more than that, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have the blessing of boasting in God. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You just told the religious Jew they shouldn't do that. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 2, turn back there with me. Paul said in verse 17, But if you call yourself a Jew, a religious person, and rely on the law and boast in God, of course, he's saying, Verse 23 You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So, what he's saying there in verse 17 is not just if you call yourself a Jew, and if you boast in the law, and if you boast about all your accomplishments, and if you think you're God's greatest gift to the world. Paul's saying you are that. You call yourself a Jew, you pride yourself in that. Oh, we're part of the chosen people of God. No one can harm us. And you rely on the law as a means of salvation. And therefore, by doing those things, Paul says, you boast in God. And what does he say in verse 24? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, you have an, an inordinate sort of boasting. But Paul says in Romans 5.11 that we're allowed to rejoice or boast. It's the same, same Greek word, kakamai. We're allowed to rejoice or boast in God if it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ did everything for us. We're not boasting in the law. We're not boasting in ourselves. We're boasting in God. I mean, the difference is minimal, but monumental. In chapter 2, verse 17, you boast in God. You rejoice in God. Chapter 5, verse 11, we boast or rejoice in God. Same verb, same noun, same preposition. You know the difference? You boast in God. We boast or rejoice in God. There's a difference. And the difference has to do with making yourself the focus, right? When you make yourself the focus, God gets out of focus. So let me ask you a question. Are you guilty of making you the focus? Do you brag about who you are? What you have become? How far God has brought you Or do you brag about what God has done in making all Christians equal before God in status and acceptance? Do you rejoice on that corporate level or the individual level? Because there's a difference. Paul rebuked those who rejoiced as individuals in chapter 2 verse 17. And they trusted in their flesh and they, they looked at all the things they had done. And they weren't even really true believers. But he says one of the blessings of being a true Christian, Romans 5.11, is that we rejoice or boast in God through Christ. We make much about Christ. We as Christians give praise to God, not praise to self. That's the point. And let me just tell you how freeing that is. If you are struggling with depression, if you are struggling with the idea that your life isn't what you want it to be and you have discontentedness, Let me make a suggestion. If you're a true Christian, you do have a right to stop focusing on yourself and to rejoice in God and what God has done for you through Christ. Do you have gratitude? Do you have a heart of thanksgiving? Or is is there a problem just with everything and everyone? As a Christian, one of the greatest blessings God has given us is the freedom not to grumble and complain and to criticize and critique and to talk about my issues and my problem. so individualistic. There's far too much individualism in Christianity today. People rejoice in God with an individualistic mindset. They isolate themselves from others. They think they're better than others. And as a result, they don't have joy. The most miserable people I know are those who are nitpicky and petty about everything except their own life and the mismanagement of their own lives, mismanagement of their own family, mismanagement of their own children, mismanagement of their own money, mismanagement of their own time. Paul says, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's boast was Christ. Paul was very content. He was content with insults, weakness, persecution, beatings, criticism, slander. Paul says, bring it on, I'll take it all. Because this isn't about me. I rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. So the way to rejoice is to throw the word we in there. We rejoice. Rejoice with all the people of God. What Christ has done for all the people of God. Our joint union with Christ. Then you'll have joy not only in this God who's saved you, but you'll have joy in those who are around you, and you'll be at peace. Joyful Christians are different than miserable Christians. And last night I was thinking about this, and I wrote down 20 things that Christians, if they do weekly, can be marked by joyfulness instead of miserableness. Number one, Longs for and delights in Lord's Day worship. Number one. Is that important to you? Or do you always have an excuse for not coming? Number two, attends consistently Lord's Day worship. That is the corporate element, right? That's not isolated Christian living, that's wanting to be with the people of God. Number three, refuses infatuation with liturgy and is infatuated with the Word of God. Number four, stops critiquing the church they made covenant vows to honor. Number five, resists thinking grass is greener at another church. Number six, looks to serve others in the church instead of grumbling that felt needs aren't being met. Number seven, prays for other churches in the area to be word-centered and blessed. Number eight, takes initiative to connect with other church members instead of waiting for others to connect with them. Number nine, Praise and trusts in simple means of grace ordained by God. Preaching, Bible reading, prayer, the sacrament. Number ten stops comparing their church leaders to other famous church leaders like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Paul Washer, Alistair Begg. I mean, they—they've they've, all those guys have given us a bad name. I love them all. Stop comparing me to them. Number eleven. Demands your children to be in church. Number 12, sacrificially tithes to the church. Number 13, pursues humility over a position in the church. Number 14, unplugs podcast preaching on Sunday and focuses upon what the leaders of your church are telling you. Number 15, serves non-Christian acquaintances in in your home and with your own time. Number 16, goes to work with joy, quits treating worldly interactions as an inconvenience, and instead views them as a blessing. Number 17. Submits to God-ordained trials. Prays that God would deliver you from them. But also understands that God will grow you through that. Number 18. Attempts to place oneself in the shoes of another perceived enemy. Number 19. Chooses to forgive wrongs. And considers one's own faults and failures before pointing the finger. And number 20. Lives quorum Deo. With integrity. No matter what it costs you. You do those 20 things. And I promise you. You will be so busy. You won't be looking. At the things wrong with other people. You'll see everything that is wrong with you. And you will rejoice. In spite of your wickedness. In spite of your sinfulness. You will rejoice in God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll have grace. And you'll have mercy on those around you. Your joy will be full. And all of this flows from the gospel. This can't be obtained any other way. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're here this morning and you know that you've not been declared righteous, that is a frightening place to be. But if God declares you righteous by His grace, through faith you demonstrate, because of His blood, there's so much joy, so many blessings. And when you have those bad moments, turn to Romans 5 and read verses 1-11. through because they tell us what we, the people of God, have all received because of Christ. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.